Thank you uh, for the warm welcome, and it's great to be back. Greetings uh, from my family who are ministering in Hamilton today, hence not being able to be with me uh, this morning. Uh, About eight years ago, I was uh, recommended a fairly easy-to-read book with a catchy title, Cat and Dog Theology. That's what grabbed my attention. And I took it with me um, to to Turkey. We'd come home on a break, and I took it on the way back uh, for something to read on the way. Uh, But before I, and what I'm sharing in the first part of this morning comes from that book, but before I go into it, I just want you guys to talk with the person beside you. I want you to say, do you like cats most, or do you like dogs most? Maybe you don't like either, but which one do you like most, cats or dogs, and why? Also the why, why is it that you like cats or dogs most? How many of you prefer cats? How many of you prefer dogs? <laughs> I, I, I probably prefer the dogs as well, though I have, I have met some wonderful cats. Um, can, can we bring up the, uh, the next one? Okay, this is uh, our first dog, Chizki, which means stripe in Turkish because of that white stripe down his chest. Occasionally he liked to dress in Turkish outfits. Um, when Chizki uh, saw me, he would run up to me and his whole body was wagging and, and he would follow me around when I sat on the couch. He would want to get up and sit beside me. Uh, he longed to be with me and he loved me to bits and uh, he was really obedient, lovely dog. We've since given him to another family because we went back to Turkey, but a beautiful obedient, lovely dog. When he wanted to go to the toilet, perfectly toilet trained, he'd go up to the door, he had this little thing that he hit to tell us that it was time, open the door, out he went, did his thing, came back in, it was great. We also had a cat. Now the cat was lovely as well, but uh, yeah, sometimes it would kind of rub up against the furniture and then it would rub up against me and I kind of felt like warm-blooded furniture at times. No difference really and kind of meow to go outside and you'd open the door and it would kind of look at me and then look outside and look at me and just a completely different nature to it. Um, What the guy in this book says is uh, a dog says... You love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you look after me. You must be God. You're my master. I live for your pleasure. And Chizki lived for my pleasure. I was number one in the household and he lived for my pleasure. A cat says, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you look after me. I must be God. (laughs) And you live for my pleasure. So one is a little bit more master-centered, a little bit more loyal and obedient. The other one is a little bit more self-absorbed, living for its own pleasure. Now, if you're following in the notes, that's the first part, okay? So the dog says, you must be God, I live for your pleasure. And the cat says, I must be God, Um, I live for, or you live for my pleasure. Um, Both display similar characteristics But uh, there's some big differences between them. And what this author then does, uh, and it could have just been a booklet, but he wrote a whole book on it. 
But he looks at the life of a Christian disciple and he says, how are you going about your lives? Do you more resemble dogs or do you more resemble cats? And so we're going to kind of work our way through that. And it does affect the way that we see God. It affects the way that we see his word. It affects the way that we see the world and our place in it. All of us to some degree, oh, uh, can we bring up the next one? I I was meant to bring a little clicker along with me and I forgot. So um, Austin's going to uh, help me out here. So Garfield, a bit of a cat there. Can we go one, one further? Great. Oh, no, come back one. One click up, just the our worldview. Can we get rid of the second one? Are they coming up together, are they? Oh, we're going too far there. Okay, let me just pile in and we'll see how we go. So all of us, to some degree, we're products of our own culture. Uh, Yes, we're from different cultures and we have some different values, but here in New Zealand, there's a certain culture that says it's... It's about you. I'm just going to flick this around so I don't have to keep turning. So I can see where we're up to. Brilliant. Uh, Our culture here in New Zealand, the classic, uh, say, traditional European background Kiwi culture would would say, um, you are number one and they breed you with very high expectations. As you grow up, or certainly as I grew up, I grew up with an expectation that I had a right to have a good education. And that I had a, uh, I expected to have a good job. In fact, I was told that it, that I should really be able to enjoy my job, that I should be happy in my job. Now, that's not an expectation that everyone in the world grows up with. The vast majority of people in the world don't have that expectation from their work. But certainly in New Zealand, that's something that's quite high. That my life would be filled with stuff, more and more stuff. Um, Entertainment and travel and gadgets, and one day at, at, at the end of my life, hopefully, I will have a comfortable retirement. Um, these are the kinds of expectations, but if we look at creation, if we look at our world, it's maybe uh, a wee bit the other way wired. Have you ever wondered why three quarters of the earth is water? If, if we are the centre of it all, if this world is really for us, why is three quarters of it for water, um, filled with water? Have you ever wondered why things like the swordfish, its colours, some of its brilliant colours, can only be seen for a certain period of time in a certain way under the water? And it's, there's all kinds of things about the created order, the galaxies, um, Giraffes only need to sleep for two hours a day and they have five-minute power naps throughout the day. Wouldn't that be great? We need so much more. Animals get up and they're immediately or quite quickly into a walk. We take months to even crawl. What is that about if we are the ultimate of creation? Why can dogs hear things and, and some animals see things that we can't? A lot of these things are for... Uh, someone other than ourselves for the glory of God. Uh, There's a uh, wonderful scripture here uh, from Colossians 1. All things were created by him and for him. So our culture would say we're the center of it and we need to think about number one ourselves. But God's word says, no, 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 the the actual, the correct worldview is that all things 
You and me and all things were created by God and for God. Romans 11 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. I'm not the hub, I'm not the center of it. God is. Revelation 4, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and for your pleasure they were created and have their being. All these things around us were created, first and foremost, for God's pleasure, not for ours. Yes, we benefit, we derive pleasure from it as well, but first and foremost, for God's. And in our worldview, that needs to be upfront, bold, first thing, first and foremost. And sometimes... uh, We get that wrong. So as Christians, probably my first question is, do we live as if it's all about us? Or do we live uh, with more of a dog theology that says it's first and foremost about our master and for his pleasure? Think about your time. Think about your studies, if you're studying. Why are you studying what you're studying? Your job, why are you doing what you're doing the way that you're doing it? Who's it for, first and foremost? your resources and how you use them. Let's go one, one further. We're going to get a little bit more personal as we go. Our worship songs. I get to be in a number of different churches. Um, in the last few days, I had the pleasure of being in, in Vietnam and hearing Vietnamese worship, and I was really, really moved by that. Um, As I move around the New Zealand church, uh, I'm in lots of different denominations, hearing lots of different worship songs. And something that I'd like to challenge you on is the content of our worship songs. Do they reflect dog theology more, or do they reflect cat theology more? Because our immediate default as human beings is to focus on the things that are about us, Um, all the things that Jesus has done for us and all the promises that he has set before us, what's, what he's preparing and what, what's waiting for us. Um, and we rejoice a lot, sometimes almost entirely, in what we're saved from. And, th- and that's, that's wonderful and it's good and it's godly and it's right, but sometimes it's incomplete because we also need to remember what we're saved to. And uh, dog theology would suggest that, we're, that we need to also, in our worship songs, be thinking about God's character and God's purposes. And we need to be singing about that a lot. And if all we sing about is everything that God has done for us and how we've benefited from everything that Christ has done, then we can sometimes, in our mind, uh, be overwhelmed with thinking in one area and we don't think so much about the other area. So the focus is first on him, second, how I've benefited. Now, um, sometimes it's really subtle. So there was a song uh, a number of years ago, um, some of you may, uh, may remember it, uh, Above All Powers, Above All Things. And in the chorus, it says, uh, Crucified, laid behind a stone, you lived and died, rejected and alone. Uh, do, you, do you know the song? Like a rose, trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. So the thought is on the, and there's some wonderful words in that song, but the thought is in in the chorus that when Jesus is on that cross, the thing that's foremost in his mind is us. No. (laughs) 
Yes, he knew what the benefits of that would be. Yes, we do benefit. But first and foremost in Jesus' mind was obedience to the Father, the will of the Father. That was what all that anguish in Gethsemane was about. I uh, did a Google uh, a couple of weeks ago, the top 10 songs, the top 10 worship songs in May 2006. And it's amazing if, if, if you look at them, uh, ones like, I've got some of them here, uh, You're a Good, Good Father, Chris Tomlin, Chris Tomlin. It's Who You Are, It's Who You Are, um, I'm Loved By You, It's Who I Am, It's Who I Am. Wonderful worship song, Travelling the World, it's awesome, I love worshipping to it. But it's, it's entirely full of me, God's fatherhood to me, and that's okay. But if that's all I sing, of those top ten songs, about seven or eight of them are vastly predominated by cat theology, which is good, but incomplete. There's only two or three songs that have some of the the focus on God's character and God's purposes for the whole world that we're meant to be a part of. And that's something that we've got to to watch out for. Um, Ocean Song from Hillsong. Uh, No Longer Slaves, Bethel Music. This is Amazing Grace by Phil Wickham. Holy Spirit by um, Curry Job. Uh, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I'm sure we've sung these ones. They're great songs, but think about what you're singing and, and, and don't just focus on one area without the other. Uh, okay, let's move on. Our prayers. Lord, bless us and bless your church and uh, use us for your glory. We could be saying that and just thinking about our family and our church and our lives, our individual lives, or we could be saying the same words and we could be thinking about the 50-plus churches in Howick. Lord, bless us and use us for your glory. We could be thinking about how we set the tone for worship each day as the sun rises first in this land that travels as an anthem of praise across the world. And we could be thinking about it collectively in our prayers. Again, the words may be the same, but what is in our mind? Uh, A famous uh, kind of missionary, I won't mention his name, but he was... Uh, He's a bit older now, but he was talking at a large mission gathering in the States, 4,000 people. It was the first time he'd been invited to this big conference. And it was a time a few decades ago when there was a a massive uh, hostage crisis in Iran. Some of the older people will remember it. Uh, Some of the middle-aged people, too. (laughs) And he said, how many of you are praying for those American hostages in the embassy? And 4,000 people raised their hands. He says, how many of you are praying for the millions of Iranian Muslims who don't know Christ? And only a few hands went up. And he basically rebuked them and sat down and was never invited back to that gathering. Uh, ISIS is on our news over and over. Not so many months ago, there was the the issue with the Yezidis, the traditional Christians in northern Iraq, and they were trapped in and ISIS was coming in, and much of the world were praying for these minority Christian groups, and rightly so, we should. 
But how many of us were praying for the 8 million Muslims who were being held captive by ISIS within that area? Who didn't, they're not a part of ISIS, they don't want their rule, but they have nowhere to go within those borders. How many of us are praying for Boko Haram, as well as the Nigerian school kids who are largely still missing? I think they found two after two years missing. You see what I mean? Sometimes with our prayers, we've got to not just think about ourselves and our brothers and sisters. We also need to think about God's worldwide purposes as well. The Prayer of Jabez was a famous book that was written a number of years ago. It was actually written by someone who had a real cat, uh, sorry, dog theology to him. And it looked at a prayer in the Old Testament where it's, um, May the Lord bless me, enlarge my territory. May your hand be with me, keep me from harm and pain, etc. But the whole idea was so that. It was for a purpose. But some people uh, individualized it a little bit too much. And we see this purpose in John 14. Um, God del- delights to answer our prayers. And we see this in the, in the person of Christ. Um, he, says, uh, he, uh, he says here, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Uh, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Jesus was about completing the Father's work, completing what his Father gave him to do for, for God's glory. And so that needs to be the, the so that part of our prayers. Let's move on. Uh, the way that we read our Bibles. Think about the, the passages we read uh, in our quiet times or the passages that we regularly preach from even. Uh, often the focus is on blessing or promise or kind of the key faith heroes and there can be a real imbalance in the, in the content and if we get that imbalance too much out, um, it's not saying that that's wrong, but there needs to be a balance. If we get the balance too much in the other direction, then we can subtly start to think that the church exists for our needs, that the youth group exists for our kids' needs, that the church and the pastoral team are here to, to nourish us and to, and to bless us and to take care of us. And Yes, they are, but there's a so that purpose. That's not the, the only purpose. And the people that we focus on when we read, it is often the, the stories of victory in Scripture and the big faith heroes. But what of the Jewish girl that, whose name we don't know, the slave girl of Naaman? And because of her wonderful witness, she pointed uh, a, an army commander to the prophet Elisha. And then that, through that wonderful healing story, he then changed his allegiance and he changed his, his, his influence. And he said, I will never again worship those other gods. I will only worship your God. What of, what of Job's kids? What of Stephen, full of grace and power, being martyred? What of those who died innocently because of David's sin? We don't talk about those bits. For what purpose did God bless people like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Ruth, Daniel, and it goes on and on. What was the purpose behind it? Was it just because he loves his children and he just wants to pour out his blessing? He does get pleasure out of that, but was that the full stop? No, it was so, so his glory would be refined in them so that his name would be lifted up and extended and his fame and renown would be known further and further afield. It was for a holy purpose. 
First um, Peter two nine says, uh, "You're a chosen generation, a holy priesthood." Do you remember what those priests were involved in? You know, they rep- there were just a few of them, a tribe of Levites, and then a few priests within that tribe, and they would they were set aside to represent the people to God, and God to the people. But first. Uh, in the Old Testament and then later in the New Testament you're told you now are a holy priesthood that's your role you're all in that role now and you are a holy nation set apart for a holy purpose and we'll get on to that purpose in a moment sometimes we can do it with uh, scripture finish the verse be still No, no, finish the verse. Be still, comma, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in all the earth, full stop. Why did we only memorize the first half? See what I'm saying? (laughs) We have this, uh, almost a default mechanism that, that, and it's natural, but we need to push beyond it. Here's another one. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, a blessing from the time of Aaron. This is in Psalm 67. Comma, that your ways will be known on earth, your salvation among all peoples. So the reason for that blessing is that his name will be known among all peoples. Isaiah 56, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, full stop. A house of prayer for all nations, like this house of prayer, many nations here. And that's why Jesus was so annoyed, or part of, part of the reason he was so annoyed, when he went into the temple and he threw all the tables over, because where all that money changing was happening was in the court of the Gentiles. That was the place where the non-Jews were able to come and be a part of the people of God and be a part of the blessing of God so that they too would share and extend God's blessing to all peoples. But they couldn't because of all of this money changing happening there. The focus had changed of that place. One more. Our theology. Oh, I think um, it's all kind of part of... Is, is there, yeah, our theology and praxis. So, for instance, uh, sometimes we can come across challenges in life, difficulties, and we come at it with a, with a particular theology, a, a way of understanding God and our lives, and sometimes it can be a bit dodgy. Here's something that I actually heard myself person was struggling in their marriage relationship and one person, a good friend, says to the one that's struggling, look, it's obviously not working out. You're on an emotional roller coaster. God desires your happiness. He doesn't want you to be miserable. I know it's not the best, but I reckon get a divorce. Now, I'm married almost 25 years. I know things can be tough and I know at times there can be reasons for great difficulties. But 
What's the theology there? At Parachute one year, I heard one of the most famous preachers in the world, beamed around the world. And I had just come home from Turkey on a, on a short-term a little furlough, and this is what the speaker said. If you don't sense the joy of God in it, in your work, in your ministry, uh, then it's not his will. If you don't sense the joy of God in it, then it's not his will. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be successful and fruitful. It's your right as his child to have his blessing on your life. Rubbish. It is not your right. (laughs) Like God loves to bless his children, absolutely. But there are many missionaries struggling around the world, not getting a lot of ministry satisfaction, a lot of work satisfaction, maybe not even working in the areas of their gifting, but they know that that is what God has asked them to do. And as Jesus followed the will of his Father when it was difficult to the cross, we're called to do likewise. And sometimes it has nothing to do with whether we're gifted for it or not, whether we feel happy or joyful in it or not. There are seasons when (laughs) it's not the point. And there are seasons when it is joyful and we are getting satisfaction. But what's our theology with it? That's what I'm uh, trying to get at here. What of those who are struggling um, with a spouse who isn't a believer? Maybe you're here today and your husband or wife isn't a believer. Is what we say to you good theology? What about those who are having huge financial pressures or they're unemployed? Or maybe they're wrestling with singleness? Is what we say good theology? Can I say what we say here to people who are suffering and in persecution as part of the persecuted church worldwide? Can I look them in the eyes and say what we say here to them? Because if we can't, it's dodgy theology. If it's all about success and fruitfulness and happiness, then our theology is is flawed. We should be able to say the same thing to those that have suffered from the earthquake in Nepal or the storms in Vanuatu, or war in Syria, our believing brothers and sisters there. Suffering and sacrifice aren't kind of uh, popular topics in places like New Zealand, and often uh, when it happens in our life, we, we kind of think something's wrong and we need to change something. But it's a normal part of the Christian life. Uh, Matthew says, all people will hate you because of me. In Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. When was the last time we heard a message on that? Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Wherever there is authentic faith, there is going to be hostility against that. Even here. In the book of Peter, in this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Jesus says five times, you know, lose your life for my sake. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. How much is this part of our, our thinking? Do, we, do our lives reflect more 
the dog theology that you are my master and I will obey you and I will stay loyal to you in the long haul and I will live for your pleasure in good and bad? Or do we reflect more the cat that's a little bit more self-absorbed than it all? What of the lost? How, how convinced are we that the lost are even lost? I speak to loads of young people or chat with lots of them and a lot of them aren't convinced that Jesus is the only way to God. They aren't convinced that there is actually a hell, that there's a, an eternity of separation from God. Yet Acts 2.36 says, Let all God's people be assured. Be assured. God has made Jesus Lord and Messiah. Sadly, uh, there's still about a third of the world, roughly 29-30%, that are considered unreached. Uh, They don't have a group of God's people near them. They can get on their bike and ride throughout their city and they won't see a church. They won't hear a Christian radio. They won't be able to find one of these or one of you. Roughly a third of the world, two billion people-ish, are still in that situation. And yet for every one of those people groups, there's at least a thousand churches in the world. A thousand churches for every one unreached people group. Imagine if each one of those sent just one missionary to those unengaged peoples with the gospel. Wouldn't that be awesome? And yet so often as, as churches we can become, uh, we can overemphasize facilities and uh, our, our equipment and our staff and our programs, 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 programs. And we can become a little bit self-absorbed. And it's, and it's often not intentional. Uh, it's not with bad motives, and there's a lot of good godly stuff happening through it, but the balance can get. Thomas Costain, can we bring up uh, the next one? He was a Canadian author, Christian guy, Christian Baptist guy. And uh, he lived a little while ago. He died in the 50s. Here we go. And he was a best-selling author of historical novels. Uh, One of his books uh, was called The Three Edwards. And he relates the incredible story from the 14th century of a time when three Edwards ruled uh, England. Two brothers in particular in this book, uh, Reynold and Edward, fought bitterly. And they uh, made war with each other. And Edward, the more powerful one, captured Reynold and imprisoned him in a true story in Newkirk Castle in England. And he built the prison cell purpose-built around him. And, uh, but it was no ordinary prison cell. It was actually really comfortable, and the door was open and uh, unlocked. And all Edward had to do to regain his identity, to get his life back, was to walk out of the door. But he couldn't. Why? Because the door was narrower than usual, deliberately, and he was fat, very fat. So what does he have to do? He has to curb his own self-absorption, his own addictions to food, lose some weight, and he can regain his identity. But the 
evil, dastardly Edward, uh, every day had him fed with the richest foods and brought ale, beer, and wine. And, and Reynold got bigger and bigger. <laughs> and he lived in his unlocked prison cell for 10 years until Edward, the evil brother, died. And then he was freed somehow, but he died a year later of ill health. He had ruined his body such, um, a prisoner of his own appetite. All he had to do was to stay hungry. But his life was focused on self, on self-absorption. How hungry are we to experience the fullness, the fullest expression of our identity in Christ? What God has made us individually and collectively to be. If we get our hunger misplaced, if we feast on the wrong things, we will lose out, our church will lose out, and the lost will stay lost. The unreached will stay unreached. So where can we find this in Scripture? In the next seven minutes or eight minutes, I'm going to introduce you to everything on the back side there. Now there's way more that I'm not going to get through all of this obviously, but it's a chance for you to have a look at at home. So can we click the next one, Austin? Yeah, let's, let's just, we'll skip over these. So uh, we'll skip over that. So we had creation, the fall, Noah, uh, Babel, no, no, one back, sorry, one back. And then in Genesis 12, we see up until Genesis 12, God's dealing with all of humanity together, one culture, one language. And then in Genesis 12, we see like a, a, a significant shift in the salvation plan of God. And he chooses one person, Abraham, and his descendants. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. You're mine. Okay, so that's wonderful to hear. And that's the blessing of God that he loves to give to his people. But it goes on. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. Because of that blessing, the purpose of that blessing is that you are blessed to be a blessing to all peoples. Next slide. Like my kids, they need to hear things more than once. Most parents don't just say something once and your child, oh, got that, and it never happens again. You have to repeat yourself. God repeats himself to Abraham three times. The third time, he even swears by his own name. The only time in scripture that God gives an oath in his own name, because there's no name higher, that he will bless Abraham and make his descendants numerous, etc. And through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And he keeps saying it over and over again. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a conduit, a means of blessing that will go through the, through the earth. Next slide. What does that word nations mean? It means families, tribes, lineage, different ethnic peoples. Okay, so we're, we're not just talking nations as we know it today, but all the different cultural people groups. Next slide. It didn't just stop at Abraham. The next uh, generation down, he reminded Isaac of it. The next generation down, he reminded Jacob of it. The same covenant, the same agreement. 
And it's, it just goes on and on through scripture. Let's uh, keep, keep ourselves moving here. Mount Sinai. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So the, the, the people of God are starting to form. God's giving his commandments to Moses. This is the type of people you're going to be. But there's a reason for this. The bottom line is how it moves out to other nations. One more click. Although the whole earth is mine, this is the continuation of the previous verse, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like those verses in First Peter. And again, there we have the reminder. One more. When, the, when Solomon finally built the temple, there was this wonderful celebration as it was opened. And yes, it was for the people of God. Yes, church is for us. But never is it just for us. In the midst of uh, the speeches at the time, there's talk of the foreigner. When the foreigner comes, when they come near to this place, for they're going to hear of your name, stretch out your hand. When they pray in this place, hear from heaven. Do what the foreigner asks of you. When they pray, Lord, you bless them too, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. It's all through scripture. Click again. When we're thinking of Jesus and his purpose, it wasn't just for the people of God. It wasn't just for the Israelites. This is what the Lord God says. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, the Israelites, and a light to the Gentiles. And then again about the Messiah. It's too small a thing for you to just be for the tribes of Jacob. No, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's your purpose too. Let's keep going here. Habakkuk, look at the nations, be utterly amazed. Zephaniah, the nations on every shore will worship him. The last book of the Old Testament, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, people are going to lift up my name. Over 300 times through scripture, over 300 times, you get this blessed to be a blessing to all peoples. All the way through, the nations, the nations, the nations, the other ethnic groups. Next slide. In the genealogy of Jesus, we have four non-Jewish people there, the nations. Then at the birth, uh, the dedication of Jesus, well, at the birth of Jesus, you have the Jewish shepherds and you have the Magi from the east. At the dedication of Jesus, as Simeon dedicates uh, the Messiah, there's the nations coming out again. One more click. Jesus spent most of his time in what's called Galilee of the Gentiles, the area of the Decapolis, 10 Greek cities. That was his, the emphasis of his ministry for most of his time of ministry was in a non-Jewish area. He had over 70 encounters in scripture with other nations, other peoples. Let's keep moving. And this gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all peoples and then the end will come. This is one of the signs for the end of the age. And we're almost there. Uh, that's from Acts and the epistles, it just keeps moving through. Yep, next one. How does this relate to us? Um, Luke says, you are heirs of the prophets in, the, in this covenant that God made with Abraham, and Moses, and the rest. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples will be blessed. And then Paul. This is really interesting. When you think of the gospel, 
If I said to you, what is the gospel, your mind would probably go to the New Testament. But Paul says the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham. And that gospel was all nations will be blessed through you. This is our mission mandate. Last one. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's the purpose of your redemption. Not just... uh, your new freedom in Christ, but that it would flow out from you um, in all directions. And we have this wonderful picture in Revelation that we'll finish with of every nation, tribe, people, and language um, before the throne. So I've given you a whole bunch of uh, scriptures there to have a look at and listed a whole bunch of other stories where the same thing is embedded in the story. But this is a thread right through scripture and down through Christian history. This is uh, our purpose. We're blessed to be a blessing to all peoples. And it's lovely to see so many different cultures here. Can we do one more, one more click here? I can't explain the, the picture. One more click. Um, one more. So we've got the, in two weeks' time, we've got the, uh, the workshop coming up. And that's going to be looking at practical skills. So how do I actually share the gospel across a culture? Because we have all of these different ways and misunderstandings towards one another. We, we, we look and behave quite differently towards one another. And we can even do that in this place. Um, this painting is from uh, the road to Emmaus. And in the, in the back left corner, you've got the disciples recognizing Jesus. And you've got a, a young slave girl from the Moors, from a North African uh, kind of migrant to that, to that area. And she's listening in. And, it's, and a Spanish painter kind of captured both sides of the blessing for the people of God and also for somebody else of quite a different ethnic background. Um, I've raced through a bit, um, probably too much in one, in one morning, but I've put the next steps. I'd love for you to consider um, from what you've heard this morning, is there anything in your life, in your, the way you use your time, your resources, how you go about things, that's hit a chord. Is there a possible next step that God is asking you to do? Maybe it's just to have a look over this a bit more slowly. And if there's a next step, I encourage you to write it there and then tell someone about it so that they can encourage you in that. Okay? Can I just pray for you guys? You guys come back up. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to worship you together this morning and we're conscious that we are connected with uh, peoples uh, right across this land and right across the world and down through history that love you and follow you, Lord. Thank you that our story and that this church's story finds its place in a much bigger story and uh, that's something that that you have gifted us with and I pray that you'll teach us and show us how we can join you in your mission to reach all peoples so that your name would be lifted up and glorified in every place and in every sphere so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.